Um, so if you don't know me, my name's Dave. I've been hanging around here for too long. I mean, for just the right amount of time to be used. So, that, so that's great. Um, I get to introduce a new topic this morning. And I've got to confess to you, I've never introduced a new topic before. I generally drill down after someone else has made the mess. Sorry, no, no. They've introduced the topic and I make a mess of it, right? So, so that's what I tend to do. And the art, I guess, is trying to give a good overview without pinching everybody else's sermon topic. So I'll try to do that. I'm going to start with a, a Bible reading. And it's from Exodus chapter 1, and it's verses 15 to 21. Yes, we're starting a subject called Unsung Heroes. It is not my autobiography. It's fine. So then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So today we begin a new topic that goes for five weeks. We get to talk about biblical unsung heroes. And Shifra and Pua, the midwives in this story, certainly fit that category. Their heroic actions saved the lives of many male children. A great tribulation was in the land. Hebrews were growing in number and strength. The Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel, it says in Exodus 1.13. And these two women step into the picture. We don't know their past. It is presumed that they were not Hebrews themselves, else why would they kill their own people? Yet they were midwives to the Hebrews. Yet they feared God. Somewhere, somehow, they had heard of the God of Israel. As a midwife, they were all about the sanctity of life. How precious is life? They were wired to preserve life, and they did. And they defied Pharaoh. And it says, and God blessed them with households. And no more is heard of these unsung heroes. Yet, their actions... Can, can we just imagine for one moment what it would be like to defy a king? Some of us struggle to have a frank discussion with our partners or our bosses. But here we are, we're faced in, or these midwives were faced in a position where they 
knew what was wrong. Matthew Henry writes, These who are themselves barbarous think to find or make others as barbarians. The commands, the edict from the Pharaoh was despicable. It was barbarous. The corruption of the heart versus the fear of God in our hearts. And this is what these midwives had. They had the fear of God in their hearts, which prevented them from taking the action that the king wanted, that the Pharaoh wanted. So if there is an unsung hero, there must be a sung hero. Is that a thing? I'm not sure. But it's what we are used to hearing. Words of praise and songs and poems that immortalise heroes' deeds. And the world has always been good at hero worship. We seek it. We search for it. It, it, it fills a void in our lives. We see it from antiquity in the great poems of the Iliad and Odyssey. Into the Valley of Death rode the 600, a poem by Lord Alfred Denison at the charge of the Light Brigade. We, we have movies where actors, like 300 for instance, where actors with bad accents and spray-on six-packs, they tell the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. We have in our own culture, we have the man from Snowy River where we immortalise the deeds of Clancy, of the overflow. We can look online and Google topics like 50 great inspiring Christian biographies. We, we sort of want to get into the lives of these heroes. How did they do it? What does it do? Why do we need it? What void does it fill in our lives? See, these heroes have a purpose. They serve a purpose. Whether it's to inspire or encourage or motivate you to dream, they can even give us a national identity, a certain pride that lifts the nation. And we'll probably all feel that in some way on Anzac Day when we revere the actions of the Anzacs. It's even bestowed upon our sports people, heroes. The America's Cup victory with our winged keel, Don Bradman, Collingwood football. Oh, okay. I've probably gone too far there. Hey, I'm open to some critique. Yeah, we'll stop there. See, it seems that we can bestow the word hero and the title of that can go on some not-so-worthy people. It sort of waters down the real meaning of what heroism is all about. And in the Bible, there are many heroes of the faith. We revere them for their lives and their ministries and the impact that they had on their nation. And Hebrews 11 provides us with a list. And for the most part, we have heard of their exploits. There's a, there's a story in 1 Samuel 29.5 and the, the, the women of, uh, of the villages start singing and chanting as they come out into the streets after the, the Philistines have been defeated and they sing songs of praise and they go, Saul has killed his thousands but David has killed his tens of thousands. It's always happened and probably always will. 
But today our topic speaks of the little known heroes of the faith. And I hope that that's the place where you and I can reside. How do we live that life of an unsung hero? Pages that don't turn probably. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking more in depth at some of these heroes. And today, as I said, I'm just going to give an overview, overview and highlight some qualities. And the first place that I want to jump into is the list that we find in Romans 16. And the list is often referred to as Paul's unknown disciples. And there's a list of 33 people. It's a biblical who's who of who are you. Let me launch into that list for you. Oh, before I do that, as an aside, it's interesting to note that Romans is often classified as one of the greatest pieces of writing that's ever been written. It's certainly the cornerstone of most of Paul's preaching. And in that book, Paul takes time out to focus on some unknown, the unknown people. And these people were instrumental in helping Paul fulfill his mission. Let's listen to these names. And I'm just going to warn you now that my pronunciation is the correct pronunciation. Phoebe, Eponetus, Priscilla, Aquila, Mary, Andronicus, Junius, Ampliatus, Ubanus, Stachys, Apelles, Aristobulus, Herodian, Narcissus, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, Philo, Lugus, Julia, Nereus, Olympus, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, Quartus. Gee, their names that just jump off the page, don't they? We've all heard of them before, haven't we not? But we can find that there are three qualities that they all have in common according to Paul. This is not according to me. This is according to Paul. But I don't think it's fair that I've had to do all the work. So I'm going to give you some homework. I've just named 33 people and now I'm going to list some qualities. And it's up to you in your own time to work out who was who. Who had this quality? Should be fun. Firstly, they were workers. There are people in this chapter who laboured much in the Lord. People whom Paul was proud to call his fellow workers. Two of them are called outstanding amongst the apostles. Some were helpers and hosts. I've probably eliminated about 10. Secondly, they were saints. Someone who is sanctified, that is holy, dedicated, separated to a sacred task. And as such, some risked their own lives in order to save Paul. One is called approved in Christ. Another, a choice man in the Lord. And as a result, as a result of all of their actions, they greeted each other with a holy kiss. They also were obedient, showing wisdom in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Thirdly, they were kinsmen. Paul uses this language. It's the language 
a family. He says, my brethren, brothers and sisters. He even refers to one of them as his mother. Several times he refers to some as beloved. And Paul finishes the chapter glorifying God for the people who have been established in the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. One of these is mentioned in 3 John. And he says that this disciple was well-beloved, he walked in truth, and he acted faithfully, and his soul prospered. That sounds like the job description for a Christian. Let me read those phrases again. He was well-beloved, he walked in truth, he acted faithfully, and his soul prospered. There's some blessings there. As we sit here this morning and listen to Paul's description, despite their acts of courage, their their willingness to put themselves at risk for the cause of Christ, and their complete obedience to God, they lived the life of servants. So one of the things that we can really, well, there's a lot of things we can learn from these lives, but it's all based in servanthood. All based in servanthood. Now, we've looked at Shifra and Pua. And we've looked at these disciples. These were people that are actively engaged in living out their faith or the Old Testament midwives, people who had feared the one true God. What about another type of unsung hero? His story is told in Jeremiah 38. And this is the story of a man who seemingly has nothing to gain at all by his actions. Nothing is mentioned of his faith. Although he obviously knows who Jeremiah is, he just sees an injustice, steps in and takes action. That makes him an unknown hero and it gets him a gig in the Bible. And his name is Ebed-Melech. Who's heard of Ebed-Melech? I'd never heard of Ebed-Melech either. Let's... Have a listen. So a little bit of a backstory before we do the reading. So Jeremiah, as a prophet of God, is doing what prophets of God are doing. He prophesies to the land of Israel. Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. How encouraging is that sort of prophecy? Wouldn't you just love that? No, not at all. And the officials, as officials do, go to the king and say, now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people. Sounds a little similar to a story of how Daniel ended up in a lion's den. Officialdom. Are there any officials here today? Sorry, I'm just having a dig. So let's read from verse 5 of um, Jeremiah 38. So King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the thing can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern, of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And now in the cistern there was no water but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. 
But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. And now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. And Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take 30 men from here under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men under his authority, went into the king's palace to to a place beneath the storeroom and took from there worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out into the cistern. And, uh, yeah, and then he stayed in the court of the guardhouse. I forgot to write that one down. So that's what Ebed-Melech did. Interesting story. There's four things I think that we can learn from this. Firstly, he was bold and courageous in the face of evil. Again, just like Shifra and Pua, he approached the king. He could have risked, he could have ended up in his own execution, challenging the king. Oi, hang on, the decision that you've just made is wrong. Get him out of there. Who are you again? Hey, that's a bit of a risk, don't you think? I certainly do. He cared about others despite his own struggles. He was a servant and a eunuch, not to mention an Ethiopian in a hostile land. It's not like he had life all going his way. See, I'm just Dave. Whatever I say or do won't really make a difference to this situation. Besides, there are plenty of other people who are paid to sort this sort of stuff out. Not me. I can wash my hands of this. It doesn't impact me one way or the other. And quite rightly, he could have had that thought process. But something within him compelled him to act. We will see shortly that his involvement... His decision to get involved certainly impacted the life of Ebed-Melech. His concern led him to action. We could have been, it could have been easy for him to have compassion, but just feel helpless. Who am I? I'm just a slave. I'm just a eunuch. I'm just an Ethiopian. But he did not care from a distance. He didn't wait around for that someone else to step in just to save the day. He took that problem personally and did what he could. Did what he could to solve the problem. We don't know whether at that time, he didn't know whether there was going to be any impact of his actions. But he took the risk. One thing that stands out is he was obviously well regarded by the king because the king actually listened to him. And then, this is what 
is amazing. And then he gave the servant, the slave, command of 30 of his troops to go and rescue him. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea, Ebed. I tell you what, I've got a plan. Take 30 of my men and rescue him. I don't think Ebed-Melech thought that was going to happen, but it did. But this is the part I want to really focus on. Four, he was compassionate in the way he went about his service. He could have just pulled Jeremiah out of the system, job done. Done my bit, tick the box. But he didn't. He thought about the task. He knew that the enemies of Jeremiah, they wouldn't have been gentle lowering down into the well. Chuck ropes under his arms and plonk, in you go. We don't know how deep it was. But he was stuck in the mud. Ebed-Melech took the time to think through the problem. Someone saw that, I'm sure. (laughs) Think through the problem. And then went, hang on, mud. There are forces at play here. There's going to take a great effort for us to get him out. Needed 30 people. So he said, let's get all the clothes and the rags and protect his armpits so we can bring him up as gently as we could. There's a phrase that seemingly, it's a constant today. We hear it all the time. And often it's true. We are busy, busier than ever before, and we are time poor. We've all heard that phrase, and probably we've all been guilty of being time poor. Not that it's a guilt thing, I'm just saying. This feeling, I guess, of pressure of time and the things that we have to do can overflow into our lives of ministry. As long as I get the job done, it doesn't matter how I do it. But that is so contrary to God's word. He doesn't say just do the job. He asks us to do it as if we're doing it for him. So do we give him a little bit or do we do our best for him? How well are we doing when we're called on to do a task? Am I prepared? Are you prepared? Did I just rock up, I say, a couple of days ago and go, oh, I think I might start this message now. She'll be right, I'll work it out. I'll go on the fly. Did I prepare? How did you? <laughs> you can tell me what you think after, I guess. But, but often we can just allow the, oh, I'll run with it. I'll run with it. Do we come to church prepared to hear from God? Or do we just finish the argument we've had with the wife and kids, jump out of the car, rock inside, and we're good to go? Because I think we're missing something if we don't come prepared. When we, in a music team, it's prevalent in every team where a leader is trying to convey some request or whatever that's got to be done. And there are those that just lap it up and work and prepare. And then there are people like me that aren't prepared maybe. And we turn up and we think we can just wing it. And it's not good enough for God. It's not good enough for God. And it certainly wasn't good enough for Ebed-Melech. He took the time and the care to go the extra mile. We will receive blessings from God if we live the way 
of the unknown heroes, the servant-hearted. We will receive blessings for God, but it might not come in the way you expect. God rewarded Ebed-Melech for his actions. And here is what God says. Jeremiah 13, 39, sorry, verse 15. Now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guardhouse, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. Praise you, Jesus, he's saying. Probably not, but that's what he's thinking. And you will not be given into the hand of the, of the men whom you dread. Amen, amen. For I will certainly rescue you, your beauty, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. What? What? No house? No new chariot? No financial security? Just my life? Is, is, is that all I'm going to get? Hang on a second. Do you know how precious... Do you know how precious your life is to God? His son died for it. It's precious. If Ebed-Melech had done nothing, had he not intervened in this situation, he would have lost his life. Just like all of the others that didn't go out to the land of the Chaldeans. Be content with the boon of this life. Reference to booty. Booty is the spoils of victory. Pirates stealing other ships and they take all that and they split the profits. That's the booty. And God's saying to Ebed-Melech, oh, and I think us, that the booty is your life and he's given it to you. And it's a blank canvas. And you can allow God to draw a painting on this blank canvas. And that's the blessing. That's part of the blessing. What we do for him is not for us. It's to put glory on him. And so often we, we get caught up in, I want a blessing, I want a blessing. I've done this. And I'm not saying we think that, but maybe we do to a degree. God's going to bless me for this stuff. He will. But it's not necessarily going to be how you, how you think or how you want it's how he wants. And we have to roll with the punches that God gives us, eh? That's what it's about. I want to finish this message with an illustration. Often we start with an illustration, but I want to finish with an illustration. I was reading a book, it's called A Swinging Century, and it's about 100 years of the Sale Golf Club. I like golf. But anyway, I was reading through this book because I was doing some research for a, a, um, a, I can't remember what I was doing, a newsletter. That's what it was. 
And I couldn't help noticing the mention of all the life members and the contributions that they had made to the golf club. And I'm sure this would be the same for most golf clubs, sporting clubs, institutions around our nation and others. And it got me thinking about this personal cost of becoming a life member. And from memory, I think there's about 19 or 20 life members in 120 years now of history. They don't come cheap, as they say. And they started their lives as a, in the golf club as probably ordinary members. And I can assume that a degree of passion and pride for the club grew. And then they started investing more of their time, their blood, their sweat and tears, and in some cases their wealth, because occasionally clubs get into difficulty. It cost them something significant, and over time their efforts were noticed, and ultimately they were rewarded with life membership. It seems to be the way of the world. Work hard, get recognised. Dare I say it, some religions work a little bit that way. If you do enough works, you get to heaven or wherever that eternal resting place is that that religion espouses. And I'm going to take the time to remind us all again this morning that if you are a Christian, you already have life membership. You already have it. That's your starting point. It's not workspace. You don't have to do the blood, sweat and tears thing for life membership. You know, we can start off as an ordinary member, i.e. we're saved. And we go, what the heck have I just done? Because that's what happened to me. I didn't know what I'd done. Hanging over the fence of a cemetery in Albury, Wodonga. Pouring my life out to God in the arms of a pastor. I had no idea what I was doing, but it seemed like a good thing for me to do it at the time because I think I'd lost all opportunities. Didn't know where I was going. Let's give this a go because nothing else has worked. And I stayed that ordinary member for a few years. Didn't seem to grow anywhere. Doubted lots of things. What, what, what's this Christianity all about? But then God started to sort of do some things and reveal some things into my heart that only he knew. Other people didn't know. And he used other people to show those things to me. This is not my autobiography, but I'm just saying this is how it works. Jesus' love causes a change that creates a passion in our heart. And it causes us to want to work for him to do things for him, to witness for him, to glorify him. That's what we're supposed to do. We use our gifts and talents for the benefit of others and to glorify God. And then some of us, some of us in this room, maybe we'll do some amazing, heroic deeds. But we'll remain as unknown heroes. There's nothing wrong with being an unknown hero. A single action on anyone's part can often end up with the label of hero attached to it. Yet interviews with many of these heroes seem to suggest that something a little bit different than that. I'm not a hero. I just did what anyone would have done in that situation. Oh, I only acted to save my family, my mates. And they seem to always have this thing where it just downplays the action 
But to the rest of us, oh, you're a hero, man. You're a hero. I want to suggest that it's the character traits that I've outlined. These are the far more important things. They are the foundations of being a hero. One day, if and when a situation arises, we then have the prerequisites for what others would call heroism. When your gifts and your talents are aligned with God's character, God can place us to good effect. And one day, you just never know, something is right happening there right before you and you've got everything that it takes for you to step into that situation and be an Ebed Malek or be a Shifra and a Pua or a one of those other 33. And, and Sail Baptist Church has its own unsung heroes. And over the course of the next few weeks, I want to encourage you to think about who they may be and what it is about them that inspires you. Have you noticed them? Do you look for them? I think we should. Unsung heroes. Maybe there's some of us here today. Some of you here today. And yet, there may be one, maybe a couple, that are in this room this morning whose deeds get spoken of in 50 or 100 years' time. Wouldn't that be great? Is that any more important? No, not at all. But they moved from the unsung hero status because they've allowed God to shine the light on their actions. It's not them shining the light on it. We don't go, oh, look, I'm going to be a hero today. Watch me. Boom, boom. doesn't happen that way. But if we are open and available for God to use us, he will shine that light where he needs it shone. So the challenge that I have this morning is what are we doing with our life membership? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You bless us every day. You bless us with a new day. Father, I pray that you would speak into our hearts, speak into our minds, Lord. Reveal to us how you want us to live. Father, I pray that you show us, Holy Spirit, just work in our hearts right now and point out areas in our lives, Father, those character areas that you hold so dear. Are there areas that we can grow, areas that you can turn around and use, Father God? I pray, Lord, that you would just continually encourage us, that you work in our lives, Father, that we are just not, you know, just Christians in a building. But, Father, we live lives outside of this building that shine a light on you, Lord. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its impact and potential impact. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.